0: It's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one
1: for yourself. In the States, why tends to be a very powerful question. Like why or why not tends to be a super powerful question. And then someone jumps into like Google Sheets, throws together a model and says, well, I think I actually can shave off. 38% off of our hardware cogs because I don't have to pay the manufacturer's value add anymore. I can just pay labor in the U.S. at a certain dollar rate. And if we can figure out how to shrink the production time in what's called a time study from an hour and 15 minutes per sensor to eight minutes per sensor, then I've just increased our margin across our entire inventory. And I've dramatically increased quality.
0: Glad to be here. So for people not familiar with density, what do you guys do?
1: We build a system that turns physical buildings or physical spaces into analytics. So we measure how many humans are inside of a space in real time. And we do so without invading privacy.
0: So I'm kind of excited about some implications here, but, but tell us who your main clients are. What are the sectors that that like you guys the most?
1: Well, the if you're a sufficiently large business in a sufficiently large industry, you probably have a sufficiently large office or workplace to have the problems that Density solves. And so we're, we're, we're sector agnostic, meaning like the companies that we work with are everything from tech to hospitality, to banking, to a federal and state governments. But I'd say that the problem space that we operate in tends to be places of work. So office spaces, conference rooms, you know, labs, community areas like cafes, soft seating and so forth. And we, we build both the sensors and the software that help a building become aware of the humans that it was served to house, or that it was built to house.
0: And you're in San Francisco, is that right? Mm-hmm. Great. So, how much of that is like security concerns versus people trying to do planning versus what What are the use cases that people want this analytics for?
1: Sure. So, in the U.S., there's about 10.9 billion square feet of leased-owned corporate office space just office space, 10.9 billion square feet. 41% of it is vacant, but paid for. So the conference room that typically doesn't get used, the workstations that are usually empty, the floors that you go past in the elevator and you sort of see are mostly ghost towns. Those are occupied spaces, meaning like signed leases, owned buildings, but unused. It's about a trillion dollars in the US on just wasted space. And the numbers internationally are nearly identical. Japan is 46% wasted, but paid for. Australia is 30, 39% wasted but paid for, I think. Um, Europe is high 30s uh, or low 40s. China seems to be the only one that's performing really well at uh, 27% wasted but paid for, and I'm a bit dubious of the numbers. The pandemic, so this change about measuring how physical space is used, has been happening over the last half decade. But I, I can't remember that. Is that, is like that quote is like, the future's here, it's just not evenly distributed. The pandemic just put in stark relief like, ha- and made urgent the concept of how blind we are to how physical space is used. And so we get used for a lot of things. I mean, we get like, did you know that we clean rooms all around the world that are clean, <laughs> that have not been touched? Sometimes multiple times a day. You know, the, the world over, as people have returned to physical space of all kinds, but particularly in offices, most organizations are setting maximum safe capacities. So, no more than a certain number of people, typically a percentage of your target capacity. So, let's say you have a target of a thousand people, you might be at forty percent to target, depending on the region and vaccination distribution, and so on and so forth in the local region. There is no way to know unless you are measuring whether or not you're near that safe capacity, unless you are measuring real-time simultaneous occupancy. And so it's not badge swipes, which are typically one way, by the way. Usually you don't badge out of buildings, badge into conference rooms, badge out of floors. Sometimes you do, depending on the organization. But if you're not measuring it, you've got no way of actually managing it. This is sort of like the Drucker quote, like, how do you manage what you don't measure? And I realize this is a long answer to your question, but for thousands of years, we have been building buildings without knowing how they get used, largely on an architect's best guess. And that's changing. And what it's changing into looks substantially closer to the Marauder's Map from Harry Potter, and a lot less like these arbitrary estimations of whether or not someone used a conference room twice turned into a report that is delivered to enterprises for a million dollars, that's a seven page PDF, suggesting enterprise grade global real estate strategy. Like That's how the industry works is these space studies that are advising sort of like large organizations. And and that is changing and it's changing for a whole host of reasons. And it is changing substantially faster as a result of the pandemic.
0: Interesting. I, you know, I was keenly interested when your folks reached out because running our commercial real estate fund, we're, we're looking for not just plain vanilla, right? We're trying to have an edge on what we do so we can make a higher return, right? So like right now we're super interested in like, small assisted living facilities that the the big giant funds would never care about but are a little they're a little too expensive for many individuals to own themselves it's a little bit of no man's land or something right you know high high income opportunity but low competition from sophisticated investors, right? And so this idea of like thinking through like, yeah, what, what investment decisions would we make differently if we knew occupancies of different asset classes and different locations and things like that? Do you have any use cases that we, we would be interested in?
1: Well, I think the question I, I might turn around, I'm happy to answer, but I would say like if you were to snap your fingers and have perfect utilization data across your entire portfolio, how many square feet is your fund?
0: It's a little bit in flux right now, but I'll, I'll give you an example. Pro, so one, prox- Yeah, one one portfolio that we're looking at buying into right now is like 1.7 million
1: square feet. Okay. And you would have 10 of these? fifty of these that's maybe like two of these
0: forty buildings that those guys have that we're buying into.
1: I see. I guess my question is like is the scope and scale around, you know, one point four or one point six million square feet, or is the scope and scale of your entire portfolio, you know, tens of millions or beyond?
0: No, not yet. Let, let's just start with
1: that. Okay. Okay. Let's just call it with that. Okay. So I would say if you had perfect data on one point, what'd you say? 1.4 or 1.6?
0: That that portfolio that we're buying into is like 1.7. Yeah.
1: 1.7. Okay. So 1.7 million square feet of space. What might you do differently? And I think at a million square feet or close to 2 million square feet, it really depends on like how you're making real estate decisions. So like we work with an organization that has densities, system, and sensors deployed across 2 million square feet of space in the U.S., And what they noticed is that they were, as they were bringing people back to office, there were buildings that people were going back to that were technically closed. They were not open, but they were at 28% utilization. They also noticed that there were teams that said, you have to reopen the Florida offices please reopen the Florida offices. We are sick of working from home. And so they did. They spent a whole bunch of money on the variable costs of building startup and staffing it properly and security measures and cleaning and all this other stuff. And utilization for a thousand person space was less than one, 1% for something like 12 weeks straight. So I, I think that the, the point is like, I think maybe maybe the question I might ask is like, how have we built so much space without knowing how it gets used in the first place? And the number of things that are connected to that is nearly infinite. We run our HVAC systems based on an approximation of humans physically being in space. Time, right? We use work schedules as opposed to foot traffic. We use staffing, like security staff. We staff sort of more heavily when it's busier, but that's an approximation based on time and sort of work schedules. We run our our energy based on time. We run trains based on an estimation of demand and like time-based schedules as opposed to actual foot traffic and sort of like regressions or predictive analysis on did people actually show up on Fridays. And we make all these anecdotal decisions on the second most valuable asset class in the world. I mean, we're talking about a 280 trillion dollar asset class whose performance is completely unmeasured. Not, not even like, and I'm sorry, I get a little bit fired up about this. Not even like partially measured. Not even like, uh, well, we still have a lot way to go. I'm talking about all of it. Is is vague? Is like unmeasured, and we are building and adding to our net inventory of buildings. Thirteen thousand three hundred and seventy buildings met new each day. We did it yesterday. We did it today. We're going to do it tomorrow. And in 2030, that number is going to go up to something like uh, 14 or 15 thousand new buildings. And so, I there is a future. There is not a future in which your portfolio of real estate does not get measured. It's just a question of when and with what technology, and is the result mass surveillance a technology that allows for mass surveillance or something that's anonymous at source? And I think once it is measured, it's all prelude to what comes next, which is extremely exciting. Like truly, the the, the ability to A/B test physical space and start to reshape the surface of the Earth is going to happen, like in our lifetimes, and all we have to do. Is acknowledge the fact that it's unmeasured and it shouldn't be. You know, um, and I, I think, I think, like, this is all making up, yeah. making all of this up as I go along, but like, this is my best estimation of what's gonna happen in real estate.
0: <laughs> no, I like it. It does make me think about like the world before marketing technology, you know, the world before digital marketing, when people would say things like, I'm wasting half my advertising budget, I just don't know which half, right? Yeah, that's right. And then all of a sudden, when you can attribute like, we spent a lot of money on that video that nobody watched right that drove no conversions let's not let's not make 10 more of those ones right
1: there's an interesting there's an interesting challenge that i think is similar to the marketing industry where there are a number of folks that are incented to not want to know this data and that tends to be owners and i would say that about 80% of owners in real estate don't really want their tenants knowing that they're underutilizing the space that they just purchased but 20% of the owners know that this is an inevitability it's just a question of like when everyone's playing by the same data set and you can apply this to a lot of things i mean your example of marketing is a very good example like being able to show the quantitative analysis of did was this effective at driving conversions is exactly the same thing that's happening with buildings conversions just being physical foot traffic people voting with their feet
0: yeah so Help me out help me understand the cost if somebody wants to install this stuff. Have you guys sure. physically uh, it in it monitoring s- stuff I got?
1: Yeah, like all in, call it seventy-five cents a square foot for yeah. two million square feet of space. That's installation, scri- subscription, physical hardware, cabling, labor, everything. If your operating budget's ten dollars a square foot, then you know. And then the ROI on this tends to be kind of nuts. So we were working with an organization who noticed that their peak Use was thirty-seven percent for a, an office space. It was like a primary office space, and they were onboarding something several hundred employees. And as a part of that, they were looking at new space. So they were looking at an adjacent office. And about ten days, five days before signing, which is a three-year is a three-year lease at a million dollars a year or five-year lease at a million dollars a year, they walked. Because their busiest moment was thirty seven percent utilized. So they were able to take eight hundred employees and the five million dollars that they were gonna spend on this brand new space that was adjacent to the office they had and just move them into an already an already appointed space that had more than enough capacity to support the team. And the cost of that was to to, to, to the client was fifty seven thousand dollars
0: <laughs> versus I mean, five million dollars.
1: Yeah, the ROI on this, on like understanding, like the decisions you can make with real estate strategy, from relative to the cost of the technology that it takes to just like get a baseline, they're 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 almost totally divorced from one another. And I remember when I got the phone call, I I, I sort of laughed and I was like, "So what you're saying is I should have charged you like 50x?" <laughs> and, they, and they laughed and were like, "Yeah, yeah, but." more importantly, I just, I, I think that the sensors and the technology and whatnot are not really the thing that people buy. You know, what people are buying is being able to understand their space and make better decisions about really large portfolios. I mean, a lot of these organizations that we work with, I mean, they're running portfolios of hundred million square feet of space and they're doing it across 60 countries. And yeah. So anyway.
0: Yeah. What about hospitality? What are, what are applications that hotels or resorts people might be looking at?
1: So uh, we work with a couple airlines. When the pandemic hit, we actually watched foot traffic drop 87% week over week. Uh, we're in a lot of their airport lounges. Like, So if you if you go to an airport lounge, say in the next, I don't know, six months or so, you start to fly or travel again. If you go to the lounge, look up and you, you might see one of our devices as you walk through it. And it's a laser-based depth system. It's really cool. It's about the size of an Apple TV, a little silver box. But what the, the organizations are using it for is dynamic staffing. So after a certain number of visits, refill food. After capacity hits a certain number, perhaps you increase the staff that are in the space. And in, certainly in response to the pandemic, after a certain number of uses, clean the space more frequently. And you can apply this to any space type. So it can be applied to a, you know, a large floor or sort of a, a larger layout. It can also be applied to bathrooms or to smaller spaces. But yeah, dynamic staffing is coming and it's it'll it'll be, I, I think, likely a very standard method of figuring out how to service a physical space.
0: That's fascinating. Okay, next, retail.
1: I think retail, yeah. So retail, I, I think retail is a waste of time, broadly. So retail is a trillion, a $3 trillion market, I believe. And the problem with retail and analytics in retail, for physical analytics, is that that is where the OG people counter, that's what the OG people counter was designed for. It was a break beam sensor that was deployed on either side of a, a door. And it would it would shine sort of a, a light across to the other reflective surface. And then as someone walked through it, you would break the beam called break beam sensors. And this is the 1980s. And a little analog readout would publish a number. And at the end of the day, you would look at that readout and the clerk would divide by two because presumably you'd have an entrance and an exit. Well, the problem is that that doesn't handle lines. It also doesn't handle people like taking phone calls and wandering back and forth on the break beam. It also doesn't handle when two people walk in simultaneously, or God forbid, three people are walking in, two entering and one exiting. It doesn't handle a whole host of things. I'm carrying a box or like a mannequin or half a dozen other things. And uh, not only are those things, those systems extremely inaccurate, but the that's where physical analytics and the measurement tools sort of grew up was in retail. So what that means is that there's like a lot of commoditization in that market and it's a race to the bottom because most retailers are buying analytics systems to solve their growth problem. At any given moment only about call it 20 to 25% of the retail industry is growing. Retailers tend to be shrinking. At least physical retailers tend to be shrinking. And so you buy an analytics system and have urgency to buy an analytics system like densities even though we really don't sell to retail for all of the reasons I'm talking about. But you tend to buy a system like Densities to solve your growth problem, which means you're essentially selling to customers that are dying slowly. And the ones that Don't the ones that are growing really rapidly don't need your analytics? You know what I mean? Like the ones that are succeeding don't really need to like better understand the analytics. And uh, and so I just think it's a terrible market generally for like measurement. And I also think that there's no reasonable expectation of privacy. Is another sort of important point. Is like I'm not anti-camera. I just think that there's a lot of space out there where there's where the occupants have a reasonable expectation of privacy. And when someone has a reasonable expectation of privacy, don't deploy a camera that's doing facial recognition. If I'm going into a gap. I, I expect to be on camera for a whole host of reasons predominantly around security but i'd say it's not a hard leap to go to surveillance where you're doing like active facial recognition to determine if i've come back a couple times so yeah i like the retail industry when we can own it like long term but right now it's i think a distraction interesting there's also a lot more space out there there's a lot more other interesting space that people should spend some time thinking about and so i'm excited about i'm excited about that i'm excited about the yeah,
0: well, to me, I, I'm I'm thinking about it from the dynamic staffing standpoint, of you know the maybe the more forward thinking, like because we we look at it and we say, hey, listen, you know maybe old school malls are dying, but the nature is like people still want to get together places. If you can buy prime real estate next to a highway and turn it into more of an outdoor mall that has like a Tesla showroom instead of a Gap and has an Amazon store instead of J.C. right? and experiential restaurants, put apartment buildings above it, sell storage in the parking lot and like make it make it like an experience instead of just, I gotta run to the mall kind of thing. Then you wanna know like which of your amenities are actually getting used, what should we invest in in our next property, that kind of stuff.
1: The sets of questions though that tend to get asked are more around like point of sale conversion. They're more oriented around uh, return visits. That's why like MAC address tracking or picking up on somebody's phone is a very popular technology for retailers. And then also there's this dynamic that's a little bit different between the retailer and the owner of the space. And so like where, you know, the owner has sort of rights up until the door and then once you hit the door like the tenant then sort of has their own rights typically on how they're going to measure instrument the space. Now that differs based on region and the type of owner and all that other stuff. But broadly speaking, that's even how corporate office works as well. It's like the owner has the rights to in a multi-tenant scenario, you have the owner having responsibility and rights to all of the common areas like stairways and whatnot. But then the tenant gets to decide what technology and systems goes into their particular floor, usually a part of TI or some other investment. In, In our case, like retail is just, it's like, just put a, just use a camera. Like you want yes. And just use a facial recognition camera. Like where there are better technologies than densities and it'll give you Mm. the data that a retailer is looking for in a place where there's not a reasonable expectation of privacy. Now I would argue that cameras have all sorts of technical flaws. There are lots of issues. All cameras are not created equal. The accuracy in camera-based systems is highly variable, deeply fragmented. And there are a lot of like gotchas. And, and so I wouldn't say that the data is terribly good, unless you're working with someone like Clearview or someone who's doing like post processing or like has their own custom hardware that like produces consistent results. But the number of gotchas in that type of technology and that scenario is it's just too high. I I, I, I much prefer the number of gotchas that we have elsewhere in physical space. Not to mention, retail is a subset. It's a subset of physical space. It is not the vast majority, and I, I think it's almost like dark energy. It's like there's all this stuff out there that's clearly having an impact on GDP and growth and productivity and whatnot, and we are blind to it. As soon as you walk into an office, person might as well be invisible.
0: Interesting. So probably the next one is you know we've had a lot of folks from the special operations community intelligence agencies on the show in the past and the security implications specifically social engineering to me seems interesting of your ability to check who's tailgating and can you explain that to people a bit about why your wide density is better at seeing if somebody's tailgating versus other
1: systems sure yeah so tailgating is a function of you know someone who badges in and then to a secured door and then someone who like walks in after that person without badging in typically in the vast majority of cases tailgating is happening because an employee is being nice. It's just like one employee holding the door for another employee, but it's still a breach. It's still technically against policy. And we don't, anti-tailgating is not a focus for us right now, but we, our system is capable of very accurate count. And so like we were working with an organization at one point where like someone was literally hugging another person to test the device and like walking through the door at the same time with only one badge swipe. And we still set off the alarm when the second person who was like physically hugging the other person walked through or walked underneath the device. And what we were doing was comparing the timestamp of the entrance, the event of the entrance, and the count being two with the count of the number of badge swipes relative to the timestamp of the badge swipe. And if there's a discrepancy, two entrances at a timestamp and one badge swipe, then you set off an alarm. And yeah, so I, I think the security implications are pretty vast, although being perfect is not possible today we outperform any camera that purports to do like entry-based count by by a reasonably wide margin. However, we are not perfect. Like perfect accuracy is n- made nearly impossible because humans are weird. They <laughs> they just do stuff that you wouldn't expect. They bump into each other, they take phone calls, they bring boxes and babies and bicycles. You know, they they linger they they just do stuff like normal humans but like you think of entrances as if they're these standardized things entrances are not standard and i should say we build not only systems for the point of entry we we build a second sensor called open area which is a radar based system for unbounded space it's mounted like a like a uh, wireless access point and then it uses radar to create sort of a three-dimensional um, point cloud of humans in unbounded space space without walls so desk utilization, soft seating, you know, congregation areas. I mean, it's really cool. And it looks like the Marauder's Map from Harry Potter when you log into our software. Like, it is really cool. People moving through space is just not standard. And so, like, watching people go through an entry point or move through open area of any kind, it just, it's not standard enough for the technology to be simple. And so, a lot of organizations talk about this stuff as sensors. And that is, I think, a misappropriation of the term. These things have to be computers they require power and they require connectivity to the internet and they are doing hundreds of thousands of calculations every minute millions of calculations every hour per device i mean it's it is like it's like a miniature t2 it's like a t2 nano instance from aws in each one of the devices deployed above doorways and in space and I think that the future of that is extremely exciting.
0: You know, it's it's obvious you're passionate about your work. What else do you attribute your success to over these years? What have you guys done where other startups haven't had the same success you guys have?
1: So there's a there's a quote that I really love that was was I think from the founder of a company called Big Screen VR. He said that your your job as a CEO and founder and as a startup is to not die for long enough for the market to notice you. And I I always really like that because I think that there's a lot of organizations and products that would have been immensely useful to a lot of people and scalable, but just simply miss the window in which they were noticed by the market. They may have been relevant to the market, but unnoticed. And so, and obviously a lot of people call that luck, you know, on timing, but I think that not dying is a bit more controllable than luck. And so I I like that as sort of a way of like, can you survive long enough? So surviving. And then the other thing I also really like is typically there's two miracles that need to happen for any good business to get built, any iconic business to get built. Too few miracles and it's not hard enough. Too many miracles and it's not possible. So typically the number is like, and this, this, these are again, like approximations, but like roughly two miracles. So the first miracle was don't die. We did, we we survived long enough. And then the second miracle was, can you build a system that can count people? And that really, those, the fundamental layers to that were an entry-based system that can count people in an, a, in an API, a real-time API. And if you could build those two things, then you can start to draw concentric circles around those products and build other things. But yeah, I, I would say I attribute our current the product existing, the company existing to not dying, and the miracle of actually having built the first product to work properly. Everything that follows, I think, is has more to do with operational excellence and call it product instinct because the things that follow understanding how space is used is there's no map for that because it doesn't exist today. And because you're not replacing an existing thing, I think many of the decisions that we need to make in the coming half decade have to do more with focus. And, like, what are the things that you focus on, and less to do with hoping some miracle occurs?
0: Yeah. What, what was your funding story like? Did you bootstrap at first? What was that like?
1: Myself and my co founders, we ran a, a consulting service and sort of a product studio, I guess, is maybe the term of art today. We would build custom applications for large enterprises and we would charge them a fee. And then instead of paying the partners, anything at all. I mean, other than a modest wage, we would invest those dollars in interesting projects, side projects. And Density was, and we built all sorts of stuff. We, we built a gesture controlled drone. That was very cool. You could put your hand over a little harmonica size device and it would use real time. I believe we were using Node.js to communicate in real time with a UAV a small con- consumer grade UAV and literally a 5 year old could put their hands over this harmonica sized device go like this and play with the pitch roll and yaw of the UAV it was sick completely non commercial <laughs> but so much fun and so like density was the seventh uh, side project and it, it it was born out of predominantly laziness we 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 wanted to know how busy our favorite coffee shop was and it was really irritating that in upstate New York we had to walk 5 blocks through a bunch of snow and negative 20 with the wind chill only to hit a 20 minute line at this coffee shop called Cafe Kubal, which we love and is still around. And it was like, this is stupid. Like, why is there an API for the weather we're walking through right now? But there's not an API for the number of humans in a space. This must be a solved problem. So we like looked around for some technology. We found a ton of technology that purported to solve the problem. And we were like, great, we'll buy the hardware on Alibaba and we'll build the mobile application we've wanted to show us how busy our favorite coffee shop is over the weekend. And then we'll be done. And seven years later, I can tell you that counting people in space is one of the hardest problems I'll ever work on. People are just weird. And it just, it means you got to do a lot. And there's a lot of dependencies between the device understanding what's going on and the visualization of a human moving into or out of a space. And today, those dependencies are so many that I, I, I literally can't enumerate them all all the things that have to go right in order for that to work. But when you walk underneath one of our devices, if you are holding our mobile application, you will see yourself exit in real time. It is, to me, indistinguishable from magic. And the latency is the network. The latency is 700 milliseconds, device to client-side application, all the way round trip. So I'm extremely proud of the engineering that went into that. And it doesn't really matter. Like what matters is solving the distribution problem. How do you get an intelligent device into every relevant room in the world? Because if you can figure out how to do that, you earn the right to remake it. And uh, I just think that if you snapped your fingers and like all of a sudden New York City knew how it was used, I think that New York might design itself differently, might iterate on itself, much like we do with any other product. And whatever is true for New York is probably true for Paris and Tokyo and Denver and every major city in the world. And so again, the fundamental problem is not what's the technology. The fundamental problem is how do you solve the distribution problem? How do you get an intelligent, the technology's hard, but how do you get useful, intelligent technology into every relevant room in the world? And we think, we our hypothesis is you begin with offices and you end with coffee shops. <laughs>
0: So bootstrapped at first, paying your own way, and then did you guys raise later? Or what did that look like?
1: Oh yeah, I didn't answer your question. Yeah, so we so we sort of like funded our own side project for a little while, but then we raised an eight hundred and fifty thousand dollar round as a as a seed back in two thousand fourteen. Then a I believe it was a four point four million dollar round through Upfront Ventures and Mark Suster, who's down in L.A., he's on our board, and then we did a. Uh, Twelve million dollar round led by Founders Fund back in two thousand seventeen, and we've had a number of folks put capital into the business, sort of like when we weren't fundraising. But uh, the most recent public round was done through Kleiner Perkins just this past summer. That was a fifty one million dollar financing with participation from groups like DTA and Dick Costolo and a whole bunch of other awesome folks. Companies raised about one hundred million dollars in in the life of the company, and team's still pretty small. You know, we have eighty-six folks now. But we're we're like a less cool version of Tesla. Like we we build everything internally. We don't build cars, but we're we're vertically integrated. So we we build we own the manufacturer. We are the manufacturer of record. We build the stuff ourselves. We staff that space. We we own the facility. We build all of the hardware, all of the embedded systems, all of the machine learning and algorithm work. We do all of the client software. We do all of the sales stuff, all of the distribution I will say we do partner with folks who are doing like physical installation, but it's a cool company and I'm extremely pr- privileged to, to get to work with these folks.
0: Where uh, where's your facility? Where's your production facility?
1: We were founded in Syracuse and we actually so the the consulting company, it was called Rounded. We got a little closet that was 400 square feet with zero there were no windows as our first office back in like 2010 or something, 2011. And we wanted windows so badly that we, we like painted us like a cityscape, like skyscrapers on the wall to like pretend like we were, I don't know, in New York or something. And fast forward years later, you know, we sort of like the company, the consulting company got larger and we sort of like graduated from that space. And then we became the anchor tenant for the building itself. And then we started density and we made the decision to move manufacturing to, US, to the US as opposed to doing it overseas. And we manufacture today at a lower cost than China and at volume for a whole host of really interesting reasons. Our team came from Apple and a whole bunch of other cool places and sort of built this factory. But we took over the entire back of the building and built it into sort of this like awesome manufacturing facility. And one of the rooms that we took over was our original closet office that had no windows. So yeah, so our facility is in upstate New York, staffed by by a bunch of folks that live in Syracuse. It's a it's a really it's a cool facility.
0: You know, you brought up operational excellence before, but when you talk about operational excellence, do you mean like full like Toyota production system, lean type operational excellence, or do you mean it more generally?
1: I mean that more generally, is like it, I just mean, a, yeah.
0: It's a fascinating space to me. You know, I've, I've gone over to Japan and done the tours of Toyota and Honda and other places and across the U.S. for the people that are really intense about it. And it is surprising to me, but also really encouraging to see like how much humans can improve and these other facilities around the US that are onshoring jobs because by using creativity and brainpower even with higher higher wage staff they can produce cheaper here that's kind of inspiring to me so it's it's interesting to hear you've done the same thing
1: yeah i mean i mean typically the the reason that you you move this to asia or to vietnam or to mexico or to the half dozen other places that are um, known for large-scale, high-volume manufacturing is because of cheap labor. But if you think of the production line as its own product, which I think some organizations like Tesla have sort of the ability to to do, meaning they like they decide to like build and own the factory, you you can iterate on it much like you would any other product. But if you just partner, I think that you know over the last twenty-five years or so, we have gotten American firms have gotten so used to partnering with a JDM. Or to with a a CM of some sort that can do a large portion of like the commoditized portion of their their hardware product that they throw it over the wall they do the specialized piece then they they put together the spec you know the American firm they put together the spec they hire the the manufacturer and they say hey we've completed the thirty percent that we consider to be our special sauce can you do the rest and so then the CM hires its you know brings on its teams of firmware engineers and mechanical engineers and everything else and does the fixtures and even the supply chain management for a lot of these products. And then what, what you do is you end up, when they're done with the product, you actually buy it from the manufacturer. And I don't know that a lot of people actually understand, you know, maybe appreciate this. You, you, you've, you've, you've done some actual research into this, but what's really cool is like the, you're actually buying the product from the CM and you pay what's called an MVA or a manufacturer's value add, usually anywhere from 10 to 20% of the total cost of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the good. And so you're buying finished goods and that like shows up to the US and then you sell it for a premium and you add sort of your margin. Well, the problem with that is you didn't have control over, you know, 70% of the process. And obviously there is there are serious complicating factors to taking over the hundred percent of that process, but there's a lot of efficiencies to be gained too. Yeah. It's also fun. Like building physical stuff is really interesting, but just hard.
0: It requires the mindset of believing it's possible, right? And so many people have just accepted you can't compete with Vietnam. You can't compete with, you know, the people who are cheaper than China. Right. And, And and as a result, it's like a self fulfilling prophecy for
1: them, right? Well, being naive and having an excel instance can be a very powerful thing. You know, like if you don't know what you don't know, then there aren't really many rules to what you can't do. And you, you know, if I had known how hard it was to count to measure sort of build a system that could measure how humans use buildings, I don't think we would have done this. Like reasonably sure that I think we would have given up substantially sooner. We thought it was going to be a weekend project. So, you know, and then excel like, you know, if you're willing to ask the question, hey, should we be doing this in the states? is there any re- Why shouldn't we do this in the States? Why tends to be a very powerful question. Like why or why not tends to be a super powerful question. And then someone jumps into like Google Sheets, throws together a model and says, well, I think I actually can shave off 38% off of our hardware cogs because I don't have to pay the manufacturer's value add anymore. I can just pay labor in the US at a certain dollar rate. And if we can figure out how to shrink the production time in what's called a time study from an hour and 15 minutes per sensor to eight minutes per sensor, then I've just increased our margin across our entire inventory and i've dramatically increased quality our failure rate is 0.47% of all the units we've ever built in this factory 0. Point, we've had one failure or something like that i don't know if it's actually one failure 0.47% it's an extremely small fraction of units don't work or get returned with an actual like failed reason that wasn't like the installer or it being dropped or something.
0: Yeah. well, with you being passionate about this, I, I actually wonder if you would really enjoy the literature and, and kind of what's been done there in the last 50 years because you're saying some similar things with different verbiage. So I wonder if you'd like it. Um, oh, I'm sure
1: yeah. let me ask what, you this. What, uh, what would you recommend?
0: Mm, I would start I would start don't get bogged down in the engineering ones. I would start with like the lean CEO by Jacob Stoller. Or maybe like, yeah, that's a, that's a good one to start. Just because it's like more the mindset of like, how can you bring it to the whole business? That, that's probably the first one I'd start with. My next question though, is thinking about raising a hundred million bucks and, and from notable names, Kleiner Perkins and all these folks that you've got, what are some fundraising lessons that you've learned?
1: I mean, this is a rabbit hole that is probably worth a, a bit more time than 10 or 15 minutes, but you can't fundraise and run your business. I mean, you can, but you're going to do both worse, in my opinion. Fundraising is binary. It's not a thing that you kind of have happen. It's either It either happens and you don't die or it doesn't happen and you die. I think there are a lot of businesses that could have been built, a lot of successful businesses that could have been built that just simply didn't know how to fundraise. Investors are investing constantly as their job. Founders are raising capital once every 18 months. I am bad at fundraising right now because I'm not fundraising. If, if, if more founders acknowledged that they were bad at pitching their startup when they're for, for raising capital, not pitching their startup to maybe customers, then they would look at the process more as a process and instead say, okay, instead of going out and taking a meeting with an investor, I'm going to take 30 meetings straight for the next month with other founders. All I'm going to do is like pitch the product to other founders who are one or two stages like later than me. And I'm going to ask for feedback. And I'm going to ask them to just sort of crush me with what doesn't make sense. And I'm going to iterate on the deck. And I'm going to do that over and over and over again. And what will end up happening is one of sort of like, I guess like two or three things will happen. One, you'll find founders who want to invest. Ask for advice, don't ask for money. You'll find founders who actually want to invest their own dollars, depending on stage. Two, those founders will introduce you to their their general partners who had invested in them previously which are the introductions that you actually want. And then number 3, your your pitch and your deck will have gotten substantially better than it was when you started. So your last pitch is always your best pitch. And so if you've only done the pitch 7 times, you are 7 times as good or whatever. If you've done the pitch 67 times, you are substantially better at describing what the hell you do and why you do it and what's important and why it's valuable. And so like just do that, like pitch it so many times that you're sick of hearing it or moreover Pitch it so many times that your deck is so tight that you love every slide. That's another thing. Is a really simple rubric for like what should be in your deck is: Do I love this slide? Am I am I surprised and excited that I now get to tell you about this thing that this slide indicates? The other thing is that decks should be barbell strategy. So you want really dense slides and you want really lightweight slides. So and the reason you want those two things is because you don't want to read anything. They should be prompts. Either it's so dense. That it's just you can't read everything because it's really dense or it's so lightweight that even if you read it you'd be done in like a second and a half which means you need to explain what the hell you're talking about and why it matters and i'll give you an example of like a, a dense slide and a not dense slide so a dense slide might be uh, a competitive analysis or it might be your net dollar retention sort of waterfall or it might be some financial analysis your not dense slide your sparse or spartan slide might be in our case it's we don't think that there's a future in which buildings continue to get built but go unmeasured. So I if I say that to someone or that's on a slide, there's a lot of like thought that went into why we believe that. And describing that is substantially more useful than some bullet, bulleted set of proverbs or whatever. I, I also think that like you want to budget approximately three months at minimum. You know, you read in TechCrunch all these ideas of like, oh, I raised $66 million from a top tier investor and I did it in five days. Well the story behind that is they're a profitable business, and I'm thinking of a particular company. They're a profitable business who still has all of the money from their Series A, and it was led by a firm that is notorious for leading all of your rounds, A through wherever. And they preempted the round by giving them a term sheet without having to run a, a more a fuller process. Now, did they also have five other five other term sheets? Sure. And is that the headline that you read? Sure. But this is also an outlier. Those are not good things to benchmark against. So instead, if you think in like three months as a minimum, it's like you spend a month meeting with founders, you spend your next month meeting with investors, and you spend your last month trying to close for diligence and whatnot. That is best case scenario. That's the fastest it'll happen. And more likely is that it happens over the course of six months. And depending on how often you've done this, it will change. But there's only two fundraising seasons after January 2nd, from January 2nd, through to like July third and then after after September like tenth through to Thanksgiving. And if you are not fun if you were fundraising outside of those windows, you are fundraising while people are in Italy hanging out on a boat with their other with their friends. Now that may have changed this last year, but the vast majority of years there is an actual season. And great companies get invested in regardless of the macro. I mean, there's a lot to unpack in investing. And I think that investors I think if investors were more willing to democratize this information, there's a lot of really great blog posts and what, whatnot. But the reality is that like from an investor's perspective, they are making investments to return their fund. And so if you are taking their money, just like figure out what their percentage ownership is and the size of their fund. This is for non-angel investors. You have to be, if they own 10%, you have to be 10X bigger as a business than their entire fund to make that bet worthwhile. Which is why when we talk about like t- Total addressable market, for instance, the only reason that's really relevant is because people are trying to figure out how you return a billion dollar fund. The market's got to be large enough to be able to handle that. We don't talk about this because there's some immutable law of total address of TAMS. We talk about it because people are trying to figure out how to return hundreds of X, you know, back to LPs, because that is why venture is so interesting. Yeah. Venture is a whole like the whole like you know rabbit hole.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe to close with what's what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received?
1: The vast majority of my good ideas have come from other people or books. A couple of the ones that I like particularly hang on to are yeah, so so Dick Costello once told me your job as a CEO will always be the construction and constitution of the team. When in doubt, do one of two things, talk to a customer or work on the construction and constitution of your team. Those are really the only two things that matter. If you get those two things right, then you're, you're probably okay. I, I, think that, I think that oftentimes culture, people get really wrapped up around the concept of like keeping culture or like, how do we like maintain our culture? And the reality is that it, it's culture is if you're growing sufficiently fast, culture is gonna change with every new addition. And so what you're looking for are cultural additions, not culture fits. You're looking for values fit. I val- So in our case, we value, be humble, seek feedback, and always solve the fundamental problem. And the reason we believe those three things or value those three things is because we believe it is the fastest path to the ambitions that we hold. Being humble allows us to be more likely to get or seek feedback. Seeking feedback allows us to be more likely to be convinced otherwise that our ideas are not the best. And if that's the case, that means we might be able to be convinced and focused on the fundamental problem. And at any given moment, on any given thing, on any given team, there's probably only like one or two fundamental problems to like scale or growth or whatever else it might be. And so being humble is actually directly tied to being ambitious in our case. I think that values are aspirations. I don't think that they're things that you go and like you just get if you join Google or Apple or whatever else. And yeah, I mean, also like the High Growth Handbook is a great book. You know, I would just go read that. It's a bunch of interviews with a bunch of people smarter than me who are all tend to be co-founders or CEOs <laughs> and we're talking yeah. about like how the hell to grow a business.
0: Yeah, I love it. Well, listen, thanks for doing this. This has been fun.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's great to chat with you. P-
0: where's the best place for people to connect with you? LinkedIn or what? what's your weapon of choice?
1: LinkedIn's fine. Just Andrew Farah density. You can also find me on Twitter, which is just at Andrew Farah. And if you're trying to measure how space is used, just Density.io, but I would just generally say, like, even if you're not interested in like buying our products, like the future includes a very serious conversation about privacy. And the future includes a very serious outcome with the infrastructure that we lay in physical buildings to measure like how we humans use all this stuff. And the decisions we make now, particularly in the name of safety and security in response to COVID, is gonna have a profound impact five, 10 years from now. And so even if you're not buying stuff from us, which is totally fine. I'd encourage you to sort of be involved in the debate.
0: Very cool. Well, congratulations on all the success. Thanks, Jess. Bye, everyone.